On March 12th, Regina Calcaterra, the New York Times bestselling author of Etched in Sand, spent time with several high school East 11th graders to discuss her memoir. We were able to ask questions that we were curious about which shed light on both the book and her life. Throughout the book, you mentioned the struggles and hardships that you and your sibling have been through. What traits did you use not only to survive, but to thrive? And are these traits that you use now? The, um, there's a variety of different traits um, that we were able to use, and, but they were traits that we learned along the way. I mean, one of them is discipline, that um, we were, even though we wanted to be kids and, and, and um, you know, wanted to play and socialize and things along that line, we needed as a sibling group to have discipline. And part of that discipline is making sure that no one knew how it was that we were living, because we never wanted to get separated, making sure that someone was always watching the kids, my younger brother and sister, so people wouldn't see them alone, because if, they, if someone saw them that they were alone, um, then maybe the authorities would have been called. The discipline was also used when, um, when we were, you know, uh, stealing food to eat or when we were going to get food, which we would do, you know, at the beach or things along that line, and trying to get clothes. And, um, and the discipline was also used with, with school. I mean, for us, school was the, the, the place that we'd be able to walk in that was temperature controlled. It had clean running water, it had bathrooms that operated. That was not something that we were usually exposed to at our homes. So part of um, the discipline um, that we had was to make sure that we would go to school and alternate what days um, each one of us would stay home again and take care of the kids and then do what we could to try to focus while we were in school so we could kind of remove ourselves from, from the, the darkness that we were living on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, another um, skill set was tenacity. We were very tenacious. and. Um, and we needed to be because we weren't being provided for. We had to provide for each other and for ourselves as well. And you have to think differently when you're in that particular situation. The, um, and we didn't know it then. We didn't really use that word or weren't familiar with it, but we were resilient and, and we had grit, um, which are somewhat interchangeable words because we would kept as much as we were being knocked down, um, literally and, and, and figuratively, to, with all the experience that we were having, we'd still pop back up and continue to move forward. And those definitely are, are um, skills that, that, we, uh, that I could say I personally use now, still use now. And another um, um, characteristic that we had was good intuition. Because when you're put in these circumstances, you, you understand human behavior a lot earlier in life than you would normally do. And um, having that type of intuition and learning how to interact with other people and read them and figure out who to trust and what not to trust um, is, is definitely a, a skill set you know, now. And um, I think the skill set that I probably use most often in many of my work experiences is also crisis management. I mean, every day for us was a crisis, and to have a um, the ability to manage crisis, you know, a, a crisis, and um, work with a team, whether or not it's your siblings or it's it's colleagues, and um, get through it and do what you could to you know protect and, and care for those who are impacted by that, is a um, skill set that is not taught. You could read about it in a book, but until you actually 
learn how to manage a crisis. Um, you, you, um, until you learn how to manage a crisis, can you, can, can you actually manage a crisis? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's one of those things where you have to experience it. You can't really just learn it on your first try. You've got to make a mistake, and that's mm -hmm. how you learn. And you still make mistakes. We always still. You're, you're gonna. I'm. I'm. You know, much older than many of you here, <laughs> and um, and I still make mistakes. But because that's also human nature too. But but you're much more thoughtful um, as you proceed in in a variety of different aspects of your life because of your experience. So we go from Matthew to Maddie. Okay. Um, in chapter four, Breaking Pact, you say that you regret breaking the pact you had with your sisters. If you can go back and not tell social services what actually happened, would you? I would not tell social services what happened. I have um, no, no, you know, when people ask me about, about my childhood, if there was anything that I could change, I wouldn't change anything because all the experiences that I had is what has made me who I am today. But the one thing I would change is that I would have never told social services that day or any day after that about how it was that we were living because that had such an adverse impact on my younger siblings. Thank you, Matt. And Kaylee? Yeah, I'll get it. Okay. Um, Several social workers in the book were like really, really bad. Like, were they ever actually reported to the state? Like, did they ever like get their jobs terminated? Um, no, because that you know th that was a while back, and um, they not only were weren't reported to the state. One of them showed up at a uh, at at a library I was speaking at, <laughs> and when she introduced herself as it's my caseworker in my last foster home. I think everyone was surprised that she actually acknowledged um, that at this particular event. And, and they all looked at her like a quick whiplash, like, why are you here? So, um, but, but she went to listen and came up afterwards and basically said to me, you know, I always knew that you, you, you were smart and you were going to get through and there's nothing I could do about your sisters. Now, neither one of them I believe to be true. I didn't think she was smart. She was telling me I should, you know, consider, you know, uh, not going to college. and. Um, and she did nothing to take care of my siblings. In the book, you talked about having to steal to survive. How has this experience influenced your view of the criminal justice system? We were little kids stealing food. And um, we were um, white little children stealing food. So, first of all, we were never arrested. Right? No one ever called the police. And it was when we were little, but even when we were teenagers as well. We were uh, never arrested at all um, uh, for that. And because there were some people that probably looked at us as children stealing food, realizing that we were needed. But I tend to believe that if we were of color, that our journey on the criminal justice system would have began when we were teenagers. And that my view of the criminal justice system is, is how people are treated differently based upon their, their culture and their color and, and background. And, but there, back, back then, definitely, there's definitely an effort now to, to break that cycle from going from the institution of high school to the institution of jail. Um, but back then, that would have been, that would definitely start it. I'm convinced it would start my journey on the criminal justice system. And it's also my perception about how maybe some doors were open for me differently because, because I wasn't of color. All right. 
interesting. In chapter 7, Keeping Pact, you introduce us to Cookie's parents, who seem like decent people. They're only referred to a little in the rest of the book. Can you say more about why Cookie is the way she is? Is there a reason you don't say much about her background? Um, there wasn't a reason why I, I, I did not really share it. It, when, when you write a story, you've got to figure out what you're going to include and what you don't include. And you start out with this much information. It's like you doing a research report. You f start out with this much information and keep having to narrow it, narrow it, narrow it, narrow it. And you don't want it to be, a, you don't want a memoir to be like a biography. You don't want to have to chronicle everything that, that you know, led to so someone's, you know, where, where they were or all their experiences. You share enough information to impact the readers. So there was a time that we were considering putting those details in, but as far as how the narrative was going and the flow of the story was going, it was cut. There were many things that were cut in there as well, um, because you have to get everything into a, 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 a um, paperback that has to be between 75,000 to 85,000 words, so they could all get fit into a box and put on a shelf at Barnes & Noble. I mean, literally, there is a method that there's, you think someone's going to write a memoir and um, you know, it's going to be this flowing story of their life's experiences. But the reality is that you're also working for a company that is a publicly traded company. And, um, and they're making an investment in you. And they want to make sure that the book sells. So they help edit you to make sure that it actually sells. An example of that, I will answer the grandparent story in a moment. Do you watch um, um, Shark Tank? Mm -hmm. Right. Shark Tank, you have investors there. And they're going to figure out whether or not they want to invest in a company. And they want a piece of that company, and they want to help control an aspect of it so they make sure they get their investment back. It is the same thing with book publishing companies. They are publicly traded companies. There are investors that invest in their stock on Wall Street. They are responsible for their investors. They are responsible to make sure if they invest in, in a book that they get a return on the investment. So there's a lot of rules that actually come along with it, which I've learned as I was pitching my um, story out there to be published. So that's just, just a realistic you know, perspective on, on just you as far as like what we were to include and what we weren't to include. But my, uh, as far as my, grand, my mother's parents, they were alcoholics. And they uh, had, um, as far as what we were told by, by her and, um, and by our grandparents, they did abuse her when she was in the past. And um, we understand it wasn't to the extent that she abused us. But we also learned um, that she was bipolar. And when someone's, if they're bipolar and they aren't treated properly, they find other ways to, um, to, to self-medicate. And my mother did it through drugs and alcohol. So her mental illness combined with the fact that she was then abused by my parents, living in an alcoholic um, household, and then which led her to, to, to abuse and become addicted to alcohol and drugs, um, is, is what contributed to how it is that she treated us or failed to take care of us. But she wasn't in a nurturing environment when she was a child either. Um, I have a question. Is there a specific reason why you nicknamed Cookie Cookie? Oh, no, no, no. Cookie's name was, that was her nickname by her parents. Uh, they named her Cookie. And because we didn't want to call her mom, mm -hmm. we just used Cookie you know, okay. and, and for that reason. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I wouldn't have, like, Cookie's really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she wouldn't been, it wasn't my choice to name her cookie or brownie or you know fudge or anything else like that. You know? <laughs>
Okay, well, thank you so much for um, having me here this morning. And, um, and I'm thrilled I actually had the opportunity to speak with all of you. Thank you for listening. Hills Review is produced by the students in the podcasting and public speaking class at High School East. To automatically receive future podcasts, be sure to subscribe using the Apple Podcast app on your smartphone. Thank you.